0: Good morning. My name is Eddie. I'll be doing the second Bible reading. And it's from Hebrews chapter 8, um, verse 1 to 13. You can also find it from your Pew Bible, page 1259. The point of what we are saying is this: we do, such a high, we do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heaven, and who served in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by men. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifice. And so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already men who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at the sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern showing you on the mountain. But the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is a mediator, and is superior to the old one. And it is founded on better promises For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make the new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor, or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because... They will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sin no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete
1: and aging will soon disappear. This is the Lord for God. Thank you, Eddie. Friends, how about we just open in prayer before we go into the word. Gracious Heavenly Father, we acknowledge your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. So we ask you that you illuminate our hearts and minds to receive your truth as we hear your word to us this morning. And in all things, may you be magnified and glorified. And we ask that you do these things in Jesus' name and by the Holy Spirit. Amen. So some of you might not know, but I used to practice Hinduism. And as a Hindu, I felt I had to do a lot of things. I felt I had to pray to an idol every day. I felt I had to take part in a lot of rituals and ceremonies. I felt I had to go to festivals in temples. And why did I do all this? Well, it's how I was taught to have a relationship with God one dependent on me to perform my duty. And having worked with a number of Muslim colleagues in the past, I realized that they too thought in a similar way. That's why I'd find them telling me that they had to pray on their prayer mats daily. They had to go to a mosque every Friday. They had to abstain from certain foods. And the reason is because, once again, it was all... Based on them to perform their duty. And the danger for us as Christians is that without the right understanding, we too might think that our relationship with God is based on our performance, on our duty, where we feel we have to keep doing this and that. So if that's not the way to relate to God, how should we relate to God? Well, the Bible says it's through a covenant. And what is a covenant? Well, we heard in the kids' talk, it's basically a formal agreement between two parties where they both have to keep the agreement together and fulfill that agreement. And the term was first used in the ancient Near East where a mighty nation like Persia would conquer a weaker one and then enter into a covenant. And what that meant was that the weaker nation had to pay tributes and had to follow laws and in return receive protection. And we saw in Exodus earlier this year that even God entered into a covenant with his people. And he did that after he rescued them from Egypt. And in in, in this agreement, effectively God said, if we obey, he will bless us. And if we disobey then we will face judgment. But God, in his kindness, knowing that we are prone to sin, he gave us priests. He gave us priests to help us with this covenant who mediated on our behalf. So can you see the problem, though, relating to God according to Hinduism, Islam, or even Judaism? Because Whether we're doing it in our own strength or even if we have priests, the issue is we're still sinful and the issue is we're still trying to do it in our own strength, with our own duty, uh, following it as best as we can. And, And the reality is this is actually exhausting and it will never be enough because our sins are too great, which is why today's passage from Hebrews 8 is so important because we'll see that it is only God who himself can fix this problem. And he did this by sending his son into the world. And so the big idea to note down and remember is, after Jesus got involved, our relationship problem was solved. So it's up on screen there. So I'll repeat that again. After Jesus got involved, our relationship problem was solved. And the two truths we'll be looking at this morning is, one, how Jesus got involved to deal with our sin, and two, the new relationship we experience as a result of our relationships problem being solved. So the first truth, Jesus got involved to deal with our sin, and he did this in three ways, as seen in Hebrews eight. One to five. And if you look at your outline, you'll see those three ways. Firstly, as a superior high priest. Secondly, in the superior sanctuary. And thirdly, by providing a superior sacrifice. As we saw last week in chapter seven, we have a big high priest who mediates between us and God. But some might say, so what? The Hindus also have priests, the Muslims have Imams, and even the Jews have the Levitical priesthood who do similar things. They mediate between people. So what's so special about Jesus? Well, to understand this, let's just look at your typical high priest. Let's take the sons of the Jewish high priest Eli, for example. The people entrusted them with animal sacrifices to God, and do you know what they did? They'd eat the best part of the meat. Now, I don't know what that's like as a vegetarian, but they'd carve out a juicy T-bone steak for themselves to off, uh, before offering to God. And that's just the tip of the iceberg of the sin and the corruption, even in the priesthood, who were meant, after all, to help the people. In fact, all you need to do is a Google search of religious leaders, and corruption, and you'll find out how common and how prevalent this is, even amongst Christians. And so, and why is this common? Well, simply because the priests are sinful people like you and I. But this is where Jesus is so different. He's the sinless son of God. He's the eternal, he's from the eternal uh, uh, priesthood of Melchizedek he's appointed by an oath from god to help us it's why the author emphasizes on the first verse uh, on the first verse where he says the point of what we are saying is this we do have such a high priest and he's better than any human priest and but there's something else that makes jesus even more special and what's that you might ask Well, you see, we find him sitting down. And why is that so significant? Well, let's look at your typical priests from any religion. When you see them, what do you think they're doing? They're they're always busy doing things, right? They're performing rituals. They're reciting scriptures. They're making sacrifices. In fact, one Buddhist monk that I knew in my past he would get about four hours of sleep every night because he was so busy doing this and that. And in fact, the Levitical priests was so run off their feet that on top of all they had to do, they were also constantly offering sacrifices because they and the people needed cleansing from sin. That's why, if you remember, in the, in the tabernacle, in the place where they served, there was no seat for these priests because it was a symbol of the unending nature of their work. And so what was Jesus doing? Well, the second half of verse 1 says, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. So, so can you just look at the difference between these human priests and Jesus? They're um, fallible. Jesus is infallible. They're running around. Like Headless Chooks, Jesus sitting down at the throne of heaven. And why is he sitting down at the throne of heaven? It's because whatever he had to do to deal with sin, he did it once, whilst they are constantly doing it over and over and over again. And not only that, he's taken his rightful place on the throne of heaven. And so what other priests can this be said about So if there's anyone, firstly, we need to solve our relationship problem. It's Jesus, our superior high priest. Now, Jesus didn't just get involved to deal with our sin as a superior high priest. He also went into a superior place. And why is this important to know? Well, you see, the priests from the other religions... They all have grand places of worship, and it's where they do all their tasks, where they do their offerings, where they do their mediation from, like your temples, your shrines, your mosques. And clearly, a lot of thought has gone into designing and building these places because of how important they are to the people, because of what it means in these places and what happens in these places. So let's consider the earthly tabernacle where the Levitical priests served from. It was a beautiful structure where they had acacia boards plated with gold in sockets of silver with gold-plated bars on them. Uh, It was carefully built and designed and directed, as as Moses told them, It had beautiful coverings on the outside, it had linen sheets, it had beautiful curtains, tapestries, all these kind of things, even on the inside. So why did they go into all this effort for? It's because it represented the glory of heaven, where God dwelt, uh, dwelt and where sin could be dealt with. And and when the tabernacle moved into the temple, when it became a temple, this structure looked even more grand. But as important as these places of worship are, they're not the real thing. They don't last forever, and that's why uh, part of verse five in the tablet, uh, part of verse five uh, says about the tabernacle, it's a a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. And we know from history the Jewish temple was even destroyed not only once but twice. So That just shows the temporary nature of such a place. But now here's the difference. Here's where Jesus served from. He served from the heavenly tabernacle which is in heaven itself. So remember these priests were serving in the copy. He's serving in the reality. He's serving in one, not built by man, that can be broken down, but built by God that lasts forever, that's eternal. He's serving, even, even though these earthly structures were so beautiful, this is the glorious structure in all of heaven. That's why verse 2 says about Jesus... Sorry, he he serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by men. So not only do we have a superior high priest in Jesus, he's dealt with sin in the glory of the heavenly tabernacle itself. Now, there's one more thing that was needed to solve our relationship problem. And what was that? A superior... Sacrifice. Now, back in the day, the Levitical priests couldn't just come into the temple empty handed. In fact, none of these priests could come into the temple empty handed. So, what do they do? They had to come and bring a sacrifice for the cleansing of themselves and the cleansing of the people. And so, they offered the blood of bulls and goats. And we see this in many religions in the world today, where they come offering. Uh, incense and food, and they throw all these things in a fire. They do all sorts of things, which is why our high priest Jesus also had to bring us sacrifice. And verse 3 says, every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. Now, the reality is the sacrifices that the Levitical priests brought obviously were never enough because it was the lifeblood of animals. And sure, they were innocent animals, but they could only temporarily cover for sin. They couldn't remove it, which is why sacrifice after sacrifice was needed because the people kept sinning and sinning and sinning. And if Jesus was born in the tribe of Levi, well guess what, by law, he too would have to keep bringing such a sacrifice for us, one after another after another. And that it would be so inadequate. But praise God, he was born in the tribe of Judah. And that's why verse 4 says, If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already men who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. But remember, Jesus was still a priest. He was a priest in the heavenly order of Melchizedek, which meant he brought a different sacrifice. And what was that sacrifice? We all perhaps know it's his life, his lifeblood. And why did he do this? Because of his great love for us. And because of that, God, because you see, God knew we couldn't solve our problem on our own by doing it in our own strength, by bringing sacrifice after sacrifice. And that's why he sent his son into this world to live a sinless life and and to die an obedient death on the cross so that you and I no longer have to keep sacrificing. And his lifeblood not only covered sin. It removed sin. It removed it completely. And when it was done, it was noted on our record in the Lamb's Book of Life that we are now counted as righteous if we believe in this. And because Jesus stood in our place, we now can stand in his before God. And in John chapter 19, when Jesus said, it is finished, this is now what it means. That it is completely finished. The, not only the power of uh, the penalty of sin is gone, the power of sin is gone. We are just cleansed. What we are like white sheets, right? It's just cleansed. The blood, of, the blood of the Lamb is on us. And it's completely done. A truly superior sacrifice. So, what's the result then of knowing all that Jesus did? Like, we don't want this to just be theoretical knowledge or theological knowledge just to puff us up. What does it really mean for us? Well, it means our relationship problem with God is solved. You see, the old way of relating to God is now gone because it, it was futile. And what Jesus has done is he brought in a completely new way. He brought in a new covenant in his blood as we read in Scripture and it changed the very nature of our relationship with God, giving us a new relationship to experience. Because we no longer have to keep paying for our sins. That's why we relate in this completely new way. And this new covenant, so this new relationship, it brought three life-changing promises. And, what, and, and so verse 6, she says... But the ministry Jesus has received is a superior to theirs, as the covenant of which he is a mediator is superior to the old one because it is founded on better promises. See, it was these better promises were foretold. They were always going to come in the new covenant. And so what are these better promises then that are coming that we can experience? Well, firstly, we can call God Father something that we can only experience by Spirit. Secondly, we can know God well and intimate knowledge, not just for some of us here, but for all of us, for all who who put their faith in Jesus. And thirdly, we can experience God's forgiveness, not partially, not through animal sacrifices, but completely and for all time. So now we know the old covenant didn't work well. That's why verse 7 said, For if there'd been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But the reality is, the old covenant had nothing technically wrong with it. If followed properly, people could have a relationship with God, even if it was just a shadow of what we have now. But it clearly wasn't working. And why? Didn't it work? Because it relied, obviously, on us to keep our end of the agreement, to dutifully follow the law, which by now we all know we just couldn't because of sin. Which is why God in his love brought a new covenant, a new way to relate. And that's why verses 8 and 9, quoting the prophet Jeremiah, which we read about earlier, the author of Hebrews says, but God found fault with the people and said, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. So this is the amazing thing about the new covenant because in this new covenant, God will never turn away from us. Because once again, it's no longer dependent on us. That's why we no longer have to fear this from God. That's why we no longer also have to relate to God through a priest, through ongoing sacrifices, through rules, but through an inward transformation. And how did this all happen? It's through the giving of the Holy Spirit of God. You see, when we were saved, upon salvation... God gives us the Holy Spirit to dwell in our hearts, not in a tabernacle, not in even a temple, to dwell in us. And, and in us, he gives us a new heart and a new mind with new desires, a new will, and a, and, uh, and a, and a desire to obey, not because we have to obey, because we want to obey, not dutifully, but willingly, willingly. And that's why we now have the desire to love God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. It's not a chore. We want to do this. He's our God. And not just to love Him, we want to love others. And this is the very heart of God's law. This is what God was wanting all along in His covenant. But now we can do this through the Spirit, and that's why the first part of verse 10 Says, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. And he did this, obviously, through his spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit not only transforms us inwardly, but according to Romans 8, he testifies with our spirit that we are children of the Father through Jesus. You see, in the old covenant, his people could never call God Father. The privilege of calling Father. In fact, the first time we see someone called Father is Jesus. And yet, through Jesus and by the Spirit, we too can call him Father. So it really brings the, the last part of verse 10 to a new reality where when he says, I will be their God. And they will be my people. It could really say it as, he will be our father and we are his children. It's this closeness that we have, not just an intellectual knowledge. Now, there's a second promise in our new relationship with God. It's a promise of knowing him well. An intimate knowledge, not just for the privileged few, but for all of us who are in Christ. So what do I mean by this? It's the experience of knowing Him through His Word intimately and personally, where the Holy Spirit brings the Word alive to our hearts and minds that we know when we look at the Word, when we read the Word, when we have time and personal devotion. You see, there was a time, in, in, in traditional, even in traditional Christian society, where only the wealthy and the priests could read the Bible, and, not, and only in Latin. But now we live in a day and age where whether we're a child or an adult, whether we're rich or poor, whether we're blue-collar or white-collar, from anywhere from this world, we can all experience a deep knowledge of God. Once again, that's not theoretical, but that's life-giving, and it applies to every single one of us in this room. It's why we even have a kids' church where they are seeing this life-giving truth to them. They can know God intimately. That's why verse 11 says, no longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man know his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. And I like this quote from A.W. Tozer that sums this up well. He says, the Bible's not an end in itself, but a means to bring men to an intimate and satisfying knowledge of God That they may enter into him, that they may delight in his presence, that they may taste and know the inner sweetness of the very God himself at their core and center of their hearts. What a privilege this is. And so we come to the final promise in this new relationship with God. And it's a promise of experiencing his forgiveness you see, in the old covenant, we could only know and experience a temporary relief of having sins covered by animal sacrifice. But in the new covenant, all our sins are taken care of by Jesus once and for all. And we can know and experience complete assurance and that we are fully, fully forgiven It means God no longer remembers us according to our sin, but according to Christ's perfection and forever. And not only have the sins of our past been paid for, but the ones today and tomorrow forever. Because God promises in verse 12, For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. So what then does this all mean for us today, right now, in this place? Well, firstly, for those of us who've never experienced a relationship with God, thinking that we can only relate to him by our works, by rituals, by anything else, perhaps duty or sacrifice, the plea is to come. You are invited to take hold of this relationship You see, as I mentioned earlier, I used to be a Hindu. I used to practice Hinduism. It was also a time when I uh, was practicing Buddhism. In fact, I spent so many years of my life exploring a lot of different faiths. And the one thing they were all saying to me, no matter whether it was Hinduism or Buddhism, it was all up to me to undo my karma and do good deeds it was all up to me to generate enough merit so that I can have a good life, uh, not just in this life, but in the next life. It was all up to me to work my way to get to heaven. But when I finally came to Christ, it was no longer up to me. It was no longer up to my works. It was no longer up to anything else because it was all up to Christ. And what a relief. So, if this is us this morning, if we're the ones depending on rituals and good deeds to make ourselves right in the eyes of God, the plea, once again, is surrender to Jesus and respond by, uh, by invitation to come to faith through Him so you can be made right with God and experience this new covenant. But now, I also want to speak to those of us who are Christian who are meant to live in this light of the new covenant, but we're still living with an old covenant mentality. Look at at what verse 13 says. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. And in this side of the cross, it has disappeared. Jesus has removed the old covenant, and there is no turning back. There is no going back. And so why would we still want to live this way? Why would we want to live a duty-centered, fear-centered, rule-centered religion, like God is some harsh taskmaster just looking to trip us up every single time? Living as if God can only accept us after we reform our lives and start living perfectly. Living as if God is just out there to punish us living as if God is so far away and we're unworthy of his love because we're trapped in a vicious cycle of sin. But, you see, living this way gives us no assurance to our salvation at all. And, and I also want to say, I've experienced something like this after coming to faith in Jesus, where I knew reading my Bible was good, and yet I struggled to do that consistently where I knew praying to God was good, and I struggled to do that consistently too. I struggled with short-temperedness, where I hurt friends and family in the process. I struggled with being meek about my faith, downplaying the importance of Jesus in my life, because I was fearing what people would think of me for believing in him. And because of all of this, I feared in living in the judgment of God. I feared living that I could lose my salvation. I feared that I was just living like a servant, not a son feeling so unworthy. But in the new covenant, when I finally took hold off the promises of it, I held on knowing that I no longer have to live in fear. I no longer have to think that God is a harsh taskmaster because no matter how great our sins are, his mercy is more. And, and no, no matter how unfaithful I may be or we may be, he is faithful. And the reality is, and the greatest reality is, He's not just our God, he's our Father, and we are his children. I was his child, you are his children. And so this morning, if this is us still living in this old covenant mentality, just remember God is not a harsh taskmaster. He's a loving Father. We're his children, we're forgiven. And not just because we have have done this or we have not done this, but because of what Christ has done. once and for all and completely. And praise God, what an assurance this is that he's brought in the new covenant. So because remember, Jesus got involved and now our relationship problem is solved. Amen? Let us pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for sending us Jesus to bring us a new covenant, a new way of relating to you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Help us, Lord, not just to be hearers of this wonderful truth, but help us to live in light of it for your glory as new covenant Christians. And we ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.